The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what had been said to Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, light has arisen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. He said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He walked along from there and saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He went around all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness among the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Yeah, it's, this is a, a very powerful uh, gospel for us. Uh, we celebrate here the, the third Sunday in Ordinary Time, and we're, we're getting into uh, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is uh, the, um, the gospel that we hear in this uh, year A cycle of readings. We have A, B, and C, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each of them, we have uh, the gospel of John kind of interspersed and, and uh, at, at various points in in the, in the uh, significant seasons that, that we celebrate. So here we are, we're Matthew, but it might surprise you that we're, uh, we're here in the fourth chapter of Matthew, and, and yet this is uh, a, ch- um, a chapter and certainly a scene of beginnings. Uh, prior to this, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's important to, to note, uh, we've had the, the infancy narratives, we've had the preaching of, of John the Baptist, We've had Jesus' baptism, and we've had his uh, temptation in the wilderness. And then this, and then this, uh, this passage uh, follows on from those scenes. Uh, I think it's important because, of course, they're, they're all connected, right? I mean, there's, there is a narrative and a narrative arc of uh, the Gospel of, of Matthew that, uh, that we want to be aware of. <laughs> Uh, so as to to embrace and celebrate and and live out, in fact, in in our lives, uh, the the story of the gospel is, is something to the effect of how God becomes king, and it's it's terribly important as we look on on this passage, uh, keeping in mind Jesus's baptism, which marks him out as God's anointed king. Uh, that here he is on the move, perhaps even on the march. Uh, making his kingship felt and bringing to life the kingdom of God uh, in in his midst and in the midst of the of the people of his day. This is this is the kind of referent back to land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. The people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. Right? The, what what is what is the darkness? 
let's say, the, the rejected rule of God or a king other than God's king ruling over some part of his people. And Jesus has come to claim God's people again for his own by enacting his kingship. Now, every, as I say, everybody at the time was, was eager, was kind of um, wound up on, on these very things. Sorry, I, you know, I, this, is, this is the challenge of, of preaching, I think, from, from, the, from the pulpit, among other things, and my own uh, human limitations, is that people were wound up on this stuff, and, you know, it tends to sound pretty boring when I talk about it. You know, it's like, that, that's my bad, okay? This, this is not to say anything of the realities that, that are contained herein. The, the people were eager for the coming of God's kingdom. They were eager for the coming of the, of the kingdom of heaven. And those, those words can be used interchangeably for us because what we're talking about is the rule of God. They wanted the rule of God. And, what, and, and in part because they found themselves laboring under the, the rule of other kings and they didn't very much like it. And it's, not, it's, it's more than I think even we imagine, right? Because I think we, somet- we sometimes understand that, that we are living uh, lives of at least partial allegiance to the powers that are beyond us, right? Not one of us has, has the power to, um, uh, to wriggle out of the tax code, right? And, and if you think you do, <laughs> if you think you do we'll, we'll probably have to talk about that before you get found out because you, because you don't, right? We can't, we can't, wriggle, we can't wriggle out of the imposed law. And if we have some sense of the fact that these laws uh, by which we are governed are unjust, we're not terribly happy about it. And we might want some other rule, right? It's what makes, you know, any number of our, our political games actually somewhat significant. We say we, we prefer the other guys. until of, And this is, a, this is America as a whole, okay? So it's not necessarily your particular political penchant. But you know, we want the other guys, and then the other guys come into power, and we say, no, 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 we want the other guys. And then the other guys come into power and say, no, we want the other guys, right? It's like, what is the, what is the issue? We just don't want anyone, probably, right? We, we prefer to do it ourselves, exactly. And I don't know if you're, if, I don't know if you're a pure libertarian, Nate, but the challenge is that we, we never, we, yeah, I know, we, we share, we have a lot of the same sympathies, but, we, but we, we think we can live without any rule until we realize that we would even be enslaved by our own rule over our own lives. We'd be trapped by, by our own ambitions and desires and the rest. So I, there's, no, there's no perfect way to handle this. There, there were, in fact, movements of Jesus' time to throw off foreign powers, and some of their sloganeering, if you could call it that, was there is no king but God. We want no king but God, which makes some of the, um, you know, some of the acclamations of the crowd remember in Jesus' crucifixion when they say, there's, there's, we have no king but Caesar. So, like, oh my gosh, right? Have, have they betrayed their call or what? No, we, we want no king but God. And actually, in, in Jesus, we see not simply God's anointed king, we see God himself come as king and what that means. And what it means in some part, you know, at least according to that, that great narrative, is the people in darkness, the people laboring under the power of, of foreign kings and, and, uh, and kings that are not their own, they have seen a, a great light. They've seen the dawning of a new day. They've seen, they, they have started to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in and as Jesus of Nazareth, in and, I should say, in and through Jesus, 
and his and his ministry. So this is this is what kind of what's going on, yeah, in this in the passage. Um, I I think that's yeah that's there's I don't know there's there's so much to say I think about um, about the the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Perhaps perhaps the best way to uh, to sum it up is uh, one of one of my kind of well worn. Um, uh, how do you say, lenses to see the coming of the kingdom of God is to say that God's kingdom is a kingdom of holiness and justice. Now, you've heard me say this before. God's kingdom is a kingdom of holiness and justice. The, ki- the, the foreign kingdoms, right, or the, or the kingdoms, rather, that, that don't have God at their head are kingdoms of at least partial idolatry, and injustice, and they're linked, right? Idolatry is to, is to put something in God's place. And we recognize that, uh, you know, if, if God isn't in that absolutely central place, any number of other gods come to the fore and compete for our ultimate allegiance. So it's not as though we can't, we can't have something occupy that space. You know, our hearts are, are idol-making factories. Uh, we need to have something that is our, our number one priority. Whether I say, we probably, we, we might not think, well, I don't need to have something as my number one priority. You do have something as your number one priority. Because right? if, if ever anything, you know, any of your, your plans or dreams or desires come in co- conflict with others, how do you choose one over the other? How are your loves ordered? And are they ordered well? They're only ordered well if we have the true and living God at the very, very center of, of our hearts and our lives. And if our, and if our love for him then orders our other loves and our other kind of partial allegiances. What I mean by this kind of, um, you know, that, that idolatry creeps into this picture is that, yeah, when we don't have God at the center, something else will be at the center. And then we are made uh, to be disfigured. Why are we disfigured? Because we're made to bear the image and likeness of God. We're made to be the creatures that bear his image and likeness. That, and that image, uh, rather, our likeness to him is distorted, and, and we are disfigured if we have something other than the true and living God at the center of our lives. Right, so if we have something like money at the center of our hearts and lives, and can I say many of us are trying to not have money at the center of our hearts and lives. I am too. This is a battle to not not allow that particular God to encroach and be the center of of the way that I operate. If we were to have money be the center of our hearts and lives, then we would start to see other people with like dollar figures over their heads. Is this person going to cost me money, or is this person going to allow me to grow in, in riches? Yeah, do we, I, don't know if, I don't know if we see that. I see it because I've lived it out. You know? So this is not a confession. I went to a confession earlier this week. I'm not expecting you to, you to absolve me. I'm just saying that things get messed up when we put something other than the true and living God at the center of our life. Why? And, and, and let me say, that on the positive side, okay, that's the distorting and disfiguring part. What about, what about the part that allows us to live into our, our lives as image bearers? Well, if we look at who God is, right, in himself, he's, he's an eternal exchange 
of glorifying love. God is pure self-gift, right? He is radical generosity. When, when, the, when God is the center of our hearts and lives, then we become radically generous people. We become people who, want, who live out in the flesh that reality of uh, the life of self-gift. And now that, that life also takes, right, so we're not seeing people then as like, you know, how you're going to help me, or even we look at the world and say, what can I get out of this? But instead, I look at someone else and say, how can I serve you? And not what, what can I get out of this, but what can I give here? They're radically different, radically different realities. And the, and the life of pure self-gift is cultivated here in worship, in praise of God, and it's cultivated, say, on the outside in living lives of justice, of living lives of charity. Yeah, that, and that is the kingdom of holiness and justice. We live this relationship with God, this relationship that takes us out of ourselves. Right? He's called us to participate in his own life of love. And we're then giving ourselves to him in praise, in, in thank-filled praise. And then being habituated to going outside of ourselves, pouring ourselves out in love for him, we're, we're made ready to pour ourselves out in love of the people that he entrusts to our care. Right? The people that he causes to cross my path today. I'm ready to love because I've praised the God of self-gift. Yeah, so this is, this is the kingdom that, that God wants to enact. And you can imagine that Jesus is going to, he's going to encounter some headwinds as a result. Because these are not the ways of ego aggrandizing. These are not the ways of self-preservation. Right? This, is, this is the risky way of love, the demanding way of love. And Jesus has not just simply come to call us to it, he's come to live it out in the midst of God's people and renew them then according to his plan so that they can be made a light to shine into the darkness of the world. Right? This is, this is the, um, the symbol, the symbolism that Jesus, uh, the, sorry, that Matthew here is using to describe Jesus' ministry, and symbolism that, that Jesus himself owns and proclaims. So let me say just, um, let me say just another, another word. I know, a bit long in the tooth. It's, it's just, a re, you know, you're used to it, okay? It's just, <laughs> I, I can't excuse it. Okay, was, look, look at, the, look at the calling of the apostles, right? This is what we get, like, in the very next thing. Yeah, Jesus come proclaiming the kingdom of God, and then what does he do? He, you know, runs out and starts, you know, zapping everything into place, you know, in order to turn God's upside-down world right-side up. No, what does he do? He goes and he calls fishermen. It's like, what? I, I, I don't really... Well, are those guys best equipped to, to, serve, to serve your purposes? Well, of course they are, right? But the thing is that even now, and certainly then, we can imagine this is standing expectations on their head. He's calling, he's calling forward those people who would trust and follow him. That's, that's the quality of, um, of character that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for eager obedience. I think we can, we can tell a lot about the fishermen by the way that they respond to Jesus' call. Yeah, he calls, says, follow me. They drop everything and follow him. Now, likely they knew him before. It's not as though it's just like a shock, like he comes on the scene, he says a word, 
and they go. But look at their eager obedience. They leave their nets. The sons of Zebedee leave their father, and they follow him. That's, that is eager and quick obedience. When Jesus calls, they go, and that's the quality that he's looking for. Why is it? It's because, I don't know, in, in, uh, in, certain, in certain pious circles, we have, these kind of, we have these slogans figured out. It's not because Jesus calls the qualified. He qualifies the called. Is this good news for us? <laughs> it should be, right? It should be. Because who, who of us is qualified to usher in the kingdom of God? We're only qualified, and we're, and we're being qualified by the virtue of Jesus' calling us. I have to say, there's something kind of a, a little bit deeper, if you'll indulge me. There's something a little bit deeper going on here as well. Jesus is calling people to repentance, and he's calling them to go God's way. And, uh, of course, he's not accepted, like, with, with evenness across the board on, on this point. But he's calling them into God's own life of love. And the people who, who then turn... With Jesus at the head of this new movement, the people who turn to go God's way find themselves loved, forgiven, and renewed, right? Restored. This is, this is, where, this is where we have to be as well. Right? Do, we know, do we know ourselves to be loved by Jesus? Do we, well, that went, it went quiet. That's probably good. I'll give you the space. Do we know ourselves to be loved by Jesus? Do we know ourselves to be loved by God? It's one of those, it's one of those great things when we see, actually, the, when we reflect on the Trinity, that, that eternal exchange of, of, um, of glorifying love that God is, we know that he has actually no need for anything and that he creates in order that we might share in his own blessed life. He creates out of love. We only exist because of love. We only exist because he loves us. Are we, are we in contact with that? If we're not in contact with that, then we're going, we will live lives of idolatry. And we will promulgate injustice and perpetuate injustice. It's only when we, when we find ourselves to be loved for no reason other than that God loves us, not even that we did anything to deserve it, that we will be liberated to make God and have God as the center and source of, of our hearts and lives, as he is. Do we find ourselves loved? Do we find ourselves forgiven? This is interesting because I think forgiveness is, is actually a lot of mission alignment, like we've said that we will follow Jesus, and then sometimes we go this way and that, and we have to be brought back online. And Jesus is eager and willing to do that whenever we turn to him to ask. This, but that turning to him and asking is a matter of our being restored as his image bearers. It's about being restored in the missional life that he's entrusted to us. It's about giving us, again, the healing and strength that we need to faithfully follow him.
Yeah, I have to, I have to give a little story. Um, this past week, I went to confession, yeah? It, this happens much more frequently than you can imagine. This is like, for me, you know, once every two or three weeks, probably, I'm going to confession. I need it. And if you don't think that, if you don't, think that you don't know me, <laughs> you know, and you have to trust me on the point, that's kind of hard to do. But, yeah, so I went to confession, and, and the most touching thing um, that I've heard for a long time, the priest, the priest said to me, he, sa- he said to me, Father, because I have to tell him I'm a priest. I was behind the screen, but I have to tell him I'm a priest. He said, Father, Jesus called you, and he didn't make a mistake. Then I started crying. You know, it's like, this is how this, is how this went down. You know? I was like, how do I get out of here? You know? It's like, Jesus called you. He didn't make a mistake. This is true for you. And this is, a, this is a great kind of relieving, kind of decompressing reality, right? The weight is off our shoulders because Jesus took the initiative. He called you to bring his love to life in the world. He called you to shine his light in the darkness. He called you, and he didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. How eager he is to, to forgive you and to get your life back online, right? We, I mean, we know this. We, we're God's forgiven people. It's like one of, we're, we're God's forgiven sinners. Yeah, this is like right at the heart of our identity. And it's only, it's only there when we, when we can encounter the love and the forgiveness of God that we're ready to do anything for his mission. If we're not there, if we, don't, if we don't know ourselves to be beloved, if we don't know ourselves to be forgiven, we've got almost nothing to offer for the kingdom. Yeah, but once we find ourselves loved and forgiven... Again, be, beyond our own deserving, beyond our wildest imagination, when we find ourselves loved into life and sustained in being by the love of God, now, my friends, we're free to go and love the world into life. Right? God wants to raise up his fallen world, but only love lifts the world. Only love lifts the world. He wants to light up his darkened world. It's only love that lights up God's darkened world. And so we commit ourselves again to being his people truly, to having Jesus at the head and trusting and following him with eager obedience, uh, entrusting to him everything we have and everything we are, pledging ourselves totally to him and allowing him to lead where, wherever it is he wants us to go. And when we go, he will continue to empower us to see it through to the end, to give our whole lives in the cause of love building up his kingdom and uh, of holiness and justice.